0: This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. The explorer, Christopher Columbus, had hoped to sail from Spain to Asia. He ended up in the Americas instead. When his interpreter, a Spanish Jew, spoke to the people there, he will have done so in one of the languages he was fluent in, which included Arabic. This episode tells the story of how not just the language in which Islam was revealed, but the religion itself arrived in America possibly as early as the 1400s, on Columbus's ship. Islam certainly arrived a few decades later, in the early 1500s, on slave ships from West Africa. In other words, Islam is not new to America, even if its story has been forgotten. (laughs) We have two guests on this episode. One is Sylviane Duf, a visiting scholar at the Centre for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown University. Sylviane has written about the role that Islam played in the lives of African Muslims enslaved in the Americas. She has also observed some surprising legacies. For example, the similarities between the Muslim call to prayer and the field holler, or work song sung by slaves, which, in turn, influenced American blues music.
1: In the United States, as uh, eminent musicologists and music historians and myself have shown, the holler which gave birth to the blues is a direct product of the Muslims' religious culture. And as I showed, it really probably came from the call to prayer.
0: Our other guest is Hussein Rashid, the Assistant Dean for Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School. His PhD and his research work focus on Muslims and US popular culture. We start with Hussein, who sets the scene for us. With a documented presence of 500 years, Islam is said to be the second monotheistic religion introduced into the post-1492 Americas after Catholicism. It might even have been the first.
2: So when we talk about religions reaching the Americas, I think the monotheistic label is very important in this conversation because obviously there were people here, Native Americans, indigenous peoples, who had their own sense of spirituality, which I think as Muslims we probably would have understood as deen, but not necessarily the colonial notion of religion. But when we come to monotheism, then I think we can start talking about Islam and Catholicism and so on. And there's a argument that actually the first Muslim was a Chinese Muslim to come to the Americas, a man by the name of Zhang or Zheng He, who arrived in explorations about a decade or so before Columbus, Uh, there just hasn't been enough proof of that. So really we look to Columbus's expedition as the entry point of monotheistic religions, particularly the so-called Abrahamic traditions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, to come to the Americas.
0: Columbus had Catholics on his boats, and possibly Muslims and Jews. Which is how the Abrahamic faiths first reached the Americas.
2: Columbus is leaving the Iberian Peninsula at the same time the Reconquista is going on. So when Isabel and Ferdinand are taking their armies and coming into the Iberian Peninsula, modern day Spain and Portugal, they're giving Muslims and Jews the uh, option to leave, convert, or die. and This coincides with Columbus's expedition. And so we do have evidence that there were Muslims and Jews on Columbus's expeditionary ships. Um, And so they're coming with this large Catholic contingent into what would become the Americas. But really the largest uh, influx of Muslims is through enslavement and through human trafficking, that then becomes the a workforce that ends up building eventually the United States in particular.
0: To tell us more about this large influx of Muslims, we will now hear from Sylviane Duf. Sylviane is a historian of the African diaspora. She has researched West African Muslims who were deported on slave ships to the various countries of the Americas in the decades after Columbus arrived.
1: So really, contrary to popular belief, Muslims have had a long presence um, in the Americas. And for centuries, actually, the only Muslims in the Americas were West Africans, originally from Senegal, Gambia, Mali, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Uh, northern Ghana, northern Benin, and uh, northern Nigeria. And the region was known in some parts of West Africa since the 8th century through contact with uh, North African traders. But it was uh, spread by local traders and clerics and teachers. And actually the first Islamic state in the region was founded in Senegal around the year 1010, 1020. Then the direct slave trade to, I mean, from Africa to the Americas started in 1525. So again, Islam had been implanted in some part of West Africa for 500 years already.
0: Do we have any idea of numbers?
1: One which is kind of recognized today is about five percent of the Africans who were deported to the to the Americas were Muslims. So that at minimum over half a million people, and they were really everywhere. I mean, I documented their presence in um, English, French, Spanish, Portuguese sources in twenty three countries. You know, in from uh, South America to the Caribbean, Middle America, the United States.
0: So that's half a million Muslims or half a million Africans? No, half a million Muslims. Muslims. The African Muslims, a double minority, religious and ethnic, in the colonial world, as well as an enslaved community, strove hard to maintain their traditions, values, customs, and identity. Whatever their region of origin and their ethnic heritage, the Muslims shared a set of values, a common language, a similar education, and a lifestyle that, without erasing certain differences, made them part of a global community.
1: Muslims were an ethnic and a religious minority not only within the enslaved community, but evidently among the larger colonial world. And they could have kind of disappeared, if you will, but they really tried hard to maintain their practices and their identities. And we find a presence and uh, continued practices in a kind of wide range of sources uh, throughout the Americas. Uh, We have Islamic names, we have Arabic words, personal stories, physical descriptions, portraits, photos, the memories of their descendants and the people who lived among them. We have accounts of Muslims praying, fasting during Ramadan, refusing pork and alcohol. Um, we have description of um, offensive people wearing turbans, skull caps and veils, organizing conspiracies. They also launched the largest slave revolt in Brazilian history. And there they run a secret mosque and Quranic schools. Muslims were also pulling their resources together to free other Muslims.
0: There are some fascinating examples of how Muslims maintained the pillars of their faith. There's an amazing account from the only U.S. Muslim community whose traditions have been recorded. The Sea Islands of Georgia and South Carolina were home to a large enslaved community made up disproportionately of first-generation Africans. Just before World War II, their descendants, as well as other former slaves, were interviewed by the Works Progress Administration, These interviews provide a very direct and personal portrait of this Muslim community and of its religious habits. There's people called Ed and Peggy, and they describe their grandparents praying on the floor. All the references to prayers in the Sea Islands mention three daily prayers. And there are examples of Africans saying two daily prayers in Bahia. Adapting.
1: A few years ago, archaeologists found a copper medal on which is inscribed, there is no God but God in Arabic. It's the Muslim's profession of faith. And um, obviously a Muslim lost it in Pennsylvania in the 1750s. In the Sea Islands of Georgia and uh, South Carolina in the United States, we have, for example, the grandson of a slaveholder who related that his grandfather had slaves, and and I quote, were devout Muslims who prayed to Allah morning, noon, and evening. And even more extraordinary, in the 1930s, you know, there were men and women who had been formerly enslaved in the United States. And in Georgia, they described, you know, how their relatives and others prayed several times a day. They had never mentioned that they were Muslims. We don't even know if they understood what it was. But what they described was, one said, when my grandmother prayed, she knelt down on the floor. She bowed her head three times and she said, amin, amin, amin. And in those uh, silence of Georgia and South Carolina, uh, we have people who were enslaved there. uh, with names like Fatima, Ibrahim, Mohammed, Musa, Amina, Bilal. Also, you know, there were names of prayers and days in Arabic. And um, one thing that I found really extraordinary is that the women maintained the Islamic charity of free will offering, which is called tzadaka in Arabic in West Africa. That world has changed a bit, sadaka or it's called Saraka or Sarah. And in West Africa, the women make you know rice bowl that they give to their children, and they also make them you know for Islamic holidays. So in the 1930s, the grandchildren of these uh, women explained you know that their mothers and grandmothers gave them rice cake. And so the children understood that the word for rice cakes was saraka. But of course it's not. It's the fact of giving it, which is a saraka. And we have testimonies of these children now, you know, in the 1930s, where like, you know, in their 70s and 80s. And I even found a song which was made by the children at the time about these cakes. So uh, we have another example of practices. As you know, Islam recommends the freeing of slaves as a charity. And um, zakat, the obligatory annual contribution, can be used for that purpose. And we see, for example, in Trinidad, Muslims raised farms and purchased. The Muslims who were still enslaved or had just arrived on the slave ships. And by 1834, when slavery was abolished in the British colonies, missionaries and officials wrote that all the Muslims had been freed years earlier. I found this quote by an American missionary who uh, referred to the leader of the Muslim community in Trinidad. Uh, It was the Senegalese Samba Makumba. And these missionaries said that he was, and I quote, a bright philanthropist. Uh, we also see kind of the same thing in Brazil. I must improve their resources to buy the freedom of anyone, as it was said, of their number who was the most respected. And I found this quote by Arthur de Gobineau, uh, who was a French dip- diplomat. And uh, he was also the theoretician of the Aryan master race. He remarked, you know, in 1870, and I quote, every year they buy a certain number of their compatriots. How often they send them back to Africa.
0: Sylviane devotes one of the six chapters in her book to literacy. She says the literacy rate among Muslims was in all probability higher than it was among slaveholders.
1: You know, so in West Africa, Islam also spread through the fact, you know, that people could read and write. So there were a lot of of schools and, um, you know, throughout the Muslim areas. And they went from, you know, schools, you know, just for children up to a much higher level. And people also traveled to other countries to learn and came back and became teachers. So among the Muslims who had been deported to the Americas, you know, there were people who had been to school and, you know, they range from children, you know, with a few years of schooling to teachers, to hafiz memorizers of the Quran, and manuscripts that uh, the Muslims wrote in the Americas have been preserved. So the manuscript they wrote in Arabic or in their own languages written with the Arabic script. We have manuscripts that have been preserved in Brazil, in Jamaica, in Haiti, uh, the Bahamas, Panama, Trinidad, and the United States. And interestingly, in the United States, among President Jefferson's papers, there are two Arabic manuscripts that were written by a Muslim who was enslaved in Georgia and this man had been deported uh, to Georgia in 1786 and two years later he wrote Al-Fatiha as well as as Surah 103 and 113 and in 1790 he also wrote another manuscript and it opens with with Al-Fatiha but then There is a genealogy. There are names of angels, of the caliphs, of the prophets, etc. And he signed the manuscript. His name is Usman, and there is no might, no power, except with Allah the Great. Still, in um, President Jefferson's papers, there is a facsimile. Uh, It's not the actual manuscript, but the story is in 1807. There were two Muslims who had run away, probably from Charleston, which was the largest slave port in the U.S., and they were captured in Kentucky. Then they escaped to Tennessee. They were jailed there, and they escaped twice more. So what happened is that they wrote something in Arabic, and President Jefferson received the facsimile of those two pages that they had written. And they included the last surah of the Quran, Anas, Mankind, which speaks of refuge with Allah and of evil, which was kind of a perfect analogy to their situation. So Jefferson was willing, as he wrote, to procure the release of the man, if proper. However, their trace was lost before it could intervene Still in the United States, uh, we have Aluba Suleyman Diallo, who was from Senegal and he was deported to Maryland in 1731 and he wrote a letter in Arabic to his father, uh, which by the way is held at the British Library, and he gave it to a slave dealer with instruction to give it to the slave ship captain who had brought him to the U.S. The letter found its way to London in the hand of James Oglethorpe, who was the future founder of Georgia, and he obtained the release of uh, Diallo. So uh, in 1732, Diallo sailed to London and he wrote three copies of the Quran that he knew by her. And uh, one was sold at auction, in 2009 to the Da and Nimar Museum, which is founded by a Palestinian in, in Beirut, Lebanon. When he was in London, Diallo posed for two portraits. And although he wore uh, Western clothes, he insisted on being immortalized in his Islamic dress. So uh, one portrait was uh, bought by Qatar for almost a million dollars, I think it was 900, Thousand something a few years ago, and, uh, but it's still in London. And the other portrait is in a museum in Virginia. And Diallo uh, returned to Senegal in 1734. And there's another Senegalese that has become, you know, probably the most well known, I mean, enslaved Muslim in the United States. And he was born around 1770 in the Islamic state of Futatoro. Uh, in Senegal. And um, Omar studied for many years, he became a teacher, then a trader, and he was deported to Charleston in 1807. Then he ran away, He was caught, put in jail, and he used pieces of charcoal in his cell, and he wrote in Arabic on the walls, and that of course attracted a lot of attention. He was sold then to a politician and planter in, in North Carolina Omar Im Said wrote his autobiography in Arabic in 1831, and uh, he quotes abundantly from the Quran. And then we also have 14 manuscripts that he wrote in Arabic, and they actually show his wide knowledge of classical texts, you know, from a variety of times and authors and places, and. Um, Interestingly, his uh, last known manuscript from 1857 was the surah known as the Victory, as in the Victory of Islam, which was also the last surah revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. So, besides the manuscript, we also have uh, at least three uh, photographs of Omar, always with his head covered, and he was never freed, and he passed away in 1863.
0: Literacy was also very important when it came to revolts. For example, during the only successful slave revolt in the Americas, the 1791 revolt in Saint-Domingue. A French colonel wrote, We often found written papers in the bags, or makoutes, of the few Negroes we killed. They would describe these papers as the aristocrats' correspondence." Nobody understood the writing. It was all in Arabic. There are also a large number of manuscripts that have been recovered in Brazil. They were linked to the 1835 revolt in Bahia, the largest ever slave revolt in the Americas. The Muslim slaves timed it with Laylat al-Qadr, or the Night of Power, said to be the night the Quran was first revealed to Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and his progeny. It was Ramadan. The captured rebels wore Muslim dress, including head coverings and long white tunics, and carried prayer beads, as well as Quranic amulets on their bodies for protection. Non-Muslim Africans from various backgrounds also participated. As a result of the 1835 revolt, security forces in Bahia and elsewhere seized any items associated with Islam, including all documents written in Arabic. The social pressures and fears associated with slave revolts, of which this uprising was the largest in the Americas, were a contributing factor to the legal cessation of the importation of slaves from Africa in 1850, and eventually to the 1888 abolition of slavery in Brazil. It was quite difficult sometimes to maintain that literacy that they'd come to the US with. So they had quite creative ways of doing that.
1: It was very hard for people to maintain their skills, especially if they were young and had just a few uh, years of uh, schooling. But for others, I mean, we see people in Jamaica, uh, for example, or in Brazil or in the US, writing their own Korans. And that was hard to do in the sense that you needed to have paper. We kind of wonder how they did that. But in the United States, again in Georgia, there are testimonies by people who were formerly enslaved and by slaveholders as well of Muslims having uh, books. And those books were most likely Quran that they probably had written themselves. Uh, We have also that in uh, Jamaica or in uh, Brazil. So even though it was hard, and probably few people succeeded, but it was possible because we do know
0: that it happened. Who were the victims of the transatlantic slave trade? Anybody, anybody, anybody.
1: anybody. You know, again, it can be a, a child, or it can be some men were were taken. I mean, were captured during wars. Some Muslims had been captured during wars. Uh, for example in the establishment of Islamic states, then, you know, people fought against the people they deemed pagans. The rulers were not Muslims. So some of the Muslims who were defeated uh, during those wars were, you know, just like everybody else, you know, they were then sold and uh, sent to the Americas. But others were simply, you know, traders who had been kidnapped. Uh, you know, you had a kind of a variety of people and a variety of reasons why they ended up enslaved in the Americas.
0: Let's now talk about the Muslim legacy. There doesn't seem to be a direct continuity from that Islam to the Islam we see in America today for a number of reasons. Muslims were a minority, first of all, They were separated from their families, and there were very few Muslim women, so it was difficult to pass on the religion through generations. Also, Spain passed five Muslim bans between 1526 and 1576. One reason was that there was the fear of revolts, and the other reason was the fear that Muslims would convert indigenous people. So it was hard to maintain the faith in such conditions. Still, those first Muslims have left their mark in some quite remarkable ways.
1: Their presence and the impact they had can still be seen and heard today. For example, Arabic terminology survives in the Gala language of uh, Georgia and South Carolina we found Islamic words. I mean, we find Arabic terms in the Gola language of uh, Georgia and South Carolina, in songs in Trinidad and Peru. Uh, and in the Caribbean, there is this annual festivity, which is called Sadaka, which again, you know, is the freewill offering of Sadaka. We find also that the Muslims are acknowledged in several Afro-religions, such as uh, Candomblé and Umbanda and Macumba in Brazil, in Vodun, in Haiti, in uh, Regla Lukumi and Palomayombe in, in Cuba.
0: Probably the most interesting legacy is in the music and how Islam gave rise to the blues.
1: There is a big difference between, I mean, you know, the black music in the United States and the rest of the Americas. In the rest of the Americas, the major instrument is the drum. And we find it in all Afro-cultures throughout the Caribbean and South America, as well as, you know, Middle America. The only country where the drum doesn't exist, has disappeared completely, is the United States. And the reason is that there was a revolt in 1739 in South Carolina led by people from the Congo and they they used drums to rally people. And at that moment, drumming was forbidden in what would become the United States. So, the Muslims who had been used to use other instruments than drums, like kind of a one-string violin, as well as um, string instruments, were able to continue to use their instruments, uh, uh, for example. And actually the fiddle became the most played instrument by enslaved people in the United States. While people from Central Africa, you know, their kind of music disappeared, the music of the West Africans was kind of able, you know, to continue.
0: So drumming, which was common among slaves from the Congo and other non-Muslim regions of Africa, was banned. But stringed instruments, which were favoured by slaves from Muslim regions of West Africa, where there's a long tradition of musical storytelling, were generally allowed. This solo-oriented slave music featured elements of an Arabic-Islamic song style that stems from centuries of Islam's presence in West Africa, according to Gerhard Kubik, an ethnomusicology professor at the University of Mainz in Germany, who has written about Africa's connection to blues music. Kubik believes that many of today's blues singers echo these. Arabic-Islamic patterns in their music. He says they use melisma, or wavy intonation, which refers to a series of notes that veer from major to minor scale and back again, something that's very common in both blues music and in the Muslim call to prayer. This melody finds its roots in the regions of West Africa That had been in contact with the Arabic Islamic world of the Maghreb since the 7th and 8th centuries. And from
1: 1790
0: to 1865, there was
1: a huge migration of enslaved people from the north, I mean from the northern part of the south, if you will, from what is called the upper south to the deep south, to Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, etc. And The conditions there were absolutely horrendous. There was no possibility to have that kind of assembly of people singing and all all of that kind of, of things. And even the work song that existed in the Upper South disappeared. And what was created at the time was what was called the holler. And it's just one person, one man, just singing and if you hear horrors, you know it's it, they really sound like and that's what I what I found out and I explained they really sound like uh the call to prayer and actually there was a recording that was made of an inmate in a prison in Mississippi and that was in the 1940s And I juxtaposed the call to prayer from Senegal to the holler of this musician. You know, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, it's really hard to find, you know, when the call to prayer ends and the holler starts.
0: I shall I do Allah Ilanamwa. I shall I do a lay Lamar.
2: Whoa Lord, I woke up this morning. Man, I've been in bed. Oh babe, I was feeling vain. Well, I was thinking by the good time Lord I want telling.
1: Then that what we know is that the horror gave rise later on to the blues. What I'm saying is that the holler which gave birth to the blues is a direct product of the Muslims' religious culture. And as I showed, it really probably came from the call to prayer. People, Muslims on the plantation did certainly call to prayer and to Other people, it would have sounded just like music.
0: Now let's return to Hussein Rashid, who is the Assistant Dean for Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School. His research interests are Muslims and popular culture, and he also engages with cultural and educational institutions about teaching Islam. He's currently working on a cultural history of Muslims in the United States.
2: I consider myself an educator. That means I work in university, but I also try to find other places where people uh, are getting their information, whether it's newspapers, television, movies, opera, literature, uh, and try to make an impact because I think the more complex we can make the history of the United States, the easier it is for everybody to find a home here and see themselves in the history of this country.
0: Do you think we've just scratched the surface on this topic?
2: I think academically speaking, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to be Muslim in America, historically, culturally, artistically, uh, sociologically, anthropologically, across all these disciplines, you know, there's been an explosion of work in the last 30, 40 years. And with each revelation, with each new study, it illustrates how little we actually know. Uh, We tend to think about groups of people right now. And I think a really important job for us as academics is to find the stories of individuals and find the stories of the few women who were here in the our early part of the American history to find uh, the stories of Shia Muslims who were here. You know, very few people, for example, know that the first Smilies to come to the United States, as far as we can tell from newspaper records, were in the early 1950s. Uh, what happened to those individuals? Where are they? And I think that that sort of history and that sort of work is really so desperately needed in the field right now.
0: Did you say 1950s? Yes. That's not very early, is it?
2: Well, it's early for us because we tend to we tend to date from the sixties, the late sixties and early seventies in the United States, with the East African expulsion. So this is almost a full generation earlier.
0: Who is doing this research? Who's looking into this? Like where is it happening, this Islam in America?
2: I, I think the field of Islam in America is becoming more and more integrated to Islamic studies. So wherever you find uh, people doing work uh, on Islamic studies, you'll find people doing work on Islam in America. Uh, having said that, there's some very important people in this field um, Edward E. Curtis, Michael Muhammad Knight, Sylvia Chan Malik, Suad Abdul Kabir are just some of the names that come immediately to mind, but that's a fraction of the people working on this. Uh, it's a very exciting time to be in the field. <laughs>
0: Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with the Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mullah Mamajan performed by Black Heat. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Aisha Daya and you've been listening to Muslim
2: Footprints.